Welcome back, everybody, to the Electric Priest Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McInerney. I hope you're all well. Now, this week, I am talking with David Shore from Monkey Toast, Toronto and London, iOS, Second City alumni from the main stage, and just a great guy. He is a fantastic teacher. It was so nice catching up with David to talk about his experiences in improv, his influences. My introduction to long form was with David at Monkey Toast in London, and he's a fantastic teacher. I learned so much from him. So it was so great to pick his brain, talk about his own improv experiences and his career. So without further ado, here is my chat with David Shore. How did you get into performing, David? Um, well, my father was an opera singer. My mother was a... That's a lie. It's a huge lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, my parents are Holocaust survivors. It's a hilarious story of running from Nazis. Um, I've never heard but, the Holocaust and hilarious, but in the same sense. That's me. That's my take on the Holocaust. It's <laughs> okay. hilarious. Uh, no, but I, but often when when people find out, it's like your parents were Holocaust first. Go, yeah, it's a hilarious story. You want to hear? It? And it's like, but it's because not. There's nothing funny about it. But in any case, um, you know, Toronto. I was very aware from a young age of the Second City because of their television show SCTV. Somehow, I found it when I was twelve, and I loved it. And um, it was never an intention. You know, I, I was always funny. I was the funniest person in class. I would get in trouble in high school and stuff. And um, I did, I, in grade six, I don't know what you would call that in the Britons or the UK or whatever. How old, how old did you be in grade uh, 12? I was 12. Was okay. And we went away on a class trip for a week to some, to the Leslie M. Frost Natural Resource Center somewhere, you know, a couple hours out of Toronto, out in the wilderness. And we, you know, we, we stayed in like a dormitory there and we had like a, uh, a sketch night where everyone were put in groups and me and my friend Alan Miller um, put together with two other friends, Alan Archer, I forget who else, maybe Alex Capasurus. We just recreated the, um, uh, what was it? The Swinging Czech Brothers with Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd. And it was really inappropriate because it's all about birth control and our teachers said, you can't say birth control. So we were trying place birth control with tuna fish sandwich. Hey, where do they get their tuna fish sandwich? That's where they get the birth, you know. In any case, um, they picked two people. I forget how, it was kind of random. I forget like how they picked two people to host the show, a first half and a second half. And I was picked to be the first half show, like the host of the first half. And I was hilarious, apparently. Like I was so funny. And Sarah Evans, who was picked to be the host in the second half, she's like, I can't do Like Sarah Evans was smart and smart enough to know I can't follow that. But she was like, no, you have to do it. And I was really just funny. And Alan Miller was always like, you should go to Yuck Yucks. And Yuck Yucks is, uh, at the time was like the uh, only comedy, like stand-up place in Toronto. And, and in the 80s, they were a big part of that boom in North America. They had, they had clubs all over North America. And they still have, you know, they still have a big club in Toronto. And they've got satellite clubs, I guess. You know, when times are normal, they, they you know, have certain nights, I think, across the country. Um, and I'd go there from time to time to see stand-up. But uh I didn't have the balls to do it. And then in high school, I did it once. I did stand up, like I did an amateur night. And a lot of friends came. It went pretty well, but I could tell the rest of the audience didn't like me. I was a lot of high school, like (laughs) level jokes, you know? Yeah. Um, And then I went back another night and didn't tell anybody. Like I just told some one or two friends. And I did, I did well. I did pretty well. And one of the pros was like, I don't know if it was that. I started doing it more regularly. One of the pros was like, you should keep it up, you know? And I was like, thanks, but I'm going away to university. He's like, where are you going? I said, Western University of Western Ontario, which is in London, Ontario, which is nothing like London, England. <laughs> um, and he's like, I think there's a yuck yucks night there. And there was. And then when I was in first year, 
I became the host of the Yuck Yucks Night at at the university, which I didn't get. They're like, we can't pay you. I remember they list. I remember walking in on the Booker, listening to my tape, laughing. And he's like, look, we can't pay you. You can host the night and you can get in the club whenever you want and we'll give you free drinks. Wow, it's pretty sweet for a student. <laughs> yeah, first year university. And this is the one club on campus. So there's always a lineup and I could just, let's go in. And so it was great. And I remember I I met, I think I emceed the Bay City Rollers played <laughs> there one night, like the new what? version. The new, it was one guy from the Bay City Rollers. Oh, uh, okay. Right. And, and a new band. And they were saying, we hung out. They were super, they were really young. I got their autograph. They autographed like a photo for me. They were super, they were like the rest of it was really young. They're probably like in my, like, you know, not much older than me. Um, and then I, I, you know, I, I finished university. I spent a year unemployed because I graduated during recession and there was just oh, no great. work. <laughs> and um, I realized I wanted to work in television, but I didn't know how to get in. There was no foot in the door. I couldn't get like PA work or anything. And I applied to this school, Ryerson, uh, which was a polytechnical. At the time, there was only two polytechnical universities in Canada. And that means they give you, you have class and hands-on. Right. So you have, you have your theoretical and then you have like you're in studio, like for TV, we had TV studios, we had radio studios. Wow. Um, and industry professionals would teach the class and would come in and lecture, guest lectures. And I got in, it was very hard. To, I, I applied before and didn't get in and I, I applied again and I got in. And um, when I was there in first year, there was a sketch show like called Riot it was the it was the program sketch show. And I was like, as a lark auditioned and got in, didn't realize it was a big deal. Like people like, people like worked on, the, I remember the director saying, did you like practice? Did you like prepare at all? I'm like, no, I just, you know, but people really prepared. And I was just, I just showed up and did some characters, you know, I, you know, did some stuff and, and I was in and it was, it, it was a good show, but it was unsatisfying in that we worked for maybe six months, rehearsed twice a week. And, and the program was hard enough. Like the program was really hard because like in, in Canada, regular university, you got six courses, five courses. At Ryerson, we had six and normally you'd have eight full-time courses, but I got, I mean, no, I, yeah, I took seven classes. Sorry. I got one credit a year because I already had a degree and the, the workload was insane. And um, we were about to open the show. Like we only did three nights. It was only booked to do three nights. And my dad passed away. Oh, no. And um, I remember not want, I just didn't want to do the show. I think it was just before the show opened. Like, could be, yeah. Yeah. I think, like the show hadn't opened yet. My dad passed away. Or maybe it was a month before. It was a little bit before. Because I remember telling the story once when I came back to Toronto to someone in the press. And uh, it's in this. And I read the article. It's like moments before going on stage. Shore discovered his father had passed away. And I'm like, that never happened. Oh. You know, it was like, wow. <laughs> Not like jur- journalists take liberties. <laughs> they take real liberties. Yeah. In any case. Um, yeah. It was a little while before the show was to, to happen. I remember just thinking, I got to get the, f-. it hit me like a wall, like a week before the show. That, that was it. It hit me like a brick. Cause it's been, you know, it's been, uh, how old am I? Uh, it'll be 30 years, right. Since my dad passed away uh, this November, I guess. Yeah. This is coming up in November. So, um, but just before the show, it hit me like a brick. And I was like, I got to get out of town, but I couldn't. And um, we did the show and it was great, but then it was over. And I was like, we did all that work for this great show. And if, if we were smart, we would have maybe booked a venue and, and did it all summer. But I, I was like, I got out of town. I went to Israel for the summer and spent the summer in Kibbutz and almost didn't come back from the Kibbutz, to be honest. Um, but I stopped performing for a long time. Because it took me, I didn't realize why I stopped performing until um, 
I went out to Los Angeles and I had writer. So, so what kind of time period are we looking at here? Like in terms of long time, are we talking like a few years or was it like six months? That I was in LA? No, no, that you stopped performing. I think it was six years or four to six years. So six years went from that, that show. Maybe not that long. It was at least three or four years, but it was, a, let me, cause that was first year and then I had three, let me think three years and then maybe six years, five years at least, I think. Yeah. Wow. So it's a big gap from when you last performed. And then you went to LA. Yeah. And then I was in LA and I had writer's block and a friend of mine said, you need to be around people. You should take a class, you know, you need to be performing. And so I signed up at the Groundlings because that was a, the place to be. It was the only game in town, you know, at the time. I mean, there was Acme comedy, which I don't know if they're still around. And I met a lot of good people at the Groundlings. Like I, it, I enjoyed the classes, but I wasn't really, I didn't go there to get into improv. It was because they did mostly, they taught like short form and, um, and it was all towards writing sketch. And I went there to meet people to form a sketch group with. Um, but I got into it, you know, I started really getting into improv and I wanted to do more. And I, this guy, Co- Co- the legendary Cody Dove, the king of Second City Cruise. <laughs> Cody does this legendary Second City guy out of, out of um, where's he from originally? I think from, uh, he's from somewhere in New Mexico. His dad was like a rodeo announcer. He's, a, he was, he's like one of the few people I've ever met. This guy's a natural. You know, he was 19, I think, when I met Cody Devin. I think he told me about a place, I, who's, and it's a place I won't mention because the guy, you know, wanted to physically harm me. And he, I believe he's got, and he, no, I believe he's got mental issues. But um, <laughs> Okay, yeah. I won't mention it, but I, I went to this place and you could, you know, do improv there a few nights a week. It was cheap. Like you had a membership type thing and we I did a show there. Um, and through there, I met a guy who was like, if you checked out, if you heard of, he kept telling me about long form. I didn't know what he was talking about. You got to check out Chicago style. It was this guy, Kirk. I'm, I don't remember Kirk's last name, but he was like, um, you should check out, you know, the, the IO just opened up a, a, you know, they're renting a space. They got a show going on. You should check out Bitter Noah. So me and everyone from my sketch group, we went and saw Bitter Noah and they did a thing called the improvised movie. And they came out on stage. It was a small theater, like 45, 50 seater, maybe maybe a bit bigger, like a black box theater. And there were two groups that opened like that were like students of theirs, you know, and they did the Herald. And I was remember thinking, I don't know what's going on, but I like it. You know, like I <laughs> had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what a Herald was, never heard of a Herald. And um, they came out and then Bitter Noah came out and they were all wearing suits. Like all the guys were in black, like dark suits, ties. And there was one woman in the group and she was wearing blacks like a black uh, dress or, or like, you know, top and skirt. And they're like, Hey, we're bitter. No, we have a title of a film that's never been made. And then they made, they did the film in like an hour. <laughs> and why it was so funny. And I was laughing. So I was crying and me and my friends kept looking at each other. And it, the show literally frightened me because it, it, it blew my mind, you know? And I, after the show, um, like they were offering classes. And I said, to, Paul Valancourt was at the time he had opened up, he was in Bitter Noah and they'd moved in. And I, at the time he was the one in charge of the IO West. And I was like, when are your classes? Like, and I was like, when, like, when's your classes start? And I signed up and it was a big deal for me because, um, I like to watch American football on Sundays. And that's, if you live in North America, that's an all day thing. That's from 1 PM to seven at night. It's a whole afternoon. <laughs> but the, the first class available was Sunday afternoons. And I was like, all right, I'll take that class. Why? That's how the focus you were. <laughs> and it stayed that right. Like the, the IO, like I, like when you were in class with me monkey toes, I think we did the same thing, which was, okay, you're, you're in a Tuesday night class. Well, guess what? In level three, it's going to be the same night. Cause this works for everyone in your class and moves forward. So I was in a Sunday class for a year. 
you know, and I'm still friends, you know, like Dan Doyle, I'm still friends with some people from that class. And, and, um, you know, and then when you were ready, they put you on a team. And because you were a student there, you could come and see shows. Like for, if there was empty seats, you could see shows for free. And because they were new, there were a lot of empty seats. They weren't open every night then. And there were all these Chicago alumni who were amazing, just like a mind blowing, you know, um, you know, Neil Flynn, who, who you would know from Scrubs, like he was a janitor on Scrubs and then he mm. started in the middle. And Beer Shark Mice. Beer Shark Mice. Yeah. So Beer Shark Mice on iOS team. So I, I got to know all those people, except for Dave Keckner, I never really knew, but, um, you know, if you were good and and nice, people were friendly. And I had no social life in LA until the iOS because when you go to a party in LA, everyone's like, oh, is it exciting? I'm like, no, everyone's working the room and you have to drive, right? So you can't get drunk. <laughs> you can't really drink too much because you're driving, right? And and um, it's very superficial. But from the iOS, we'd, we'd have a show and then we'd all go hang out. And then maybe go back to someone's house. Or if there was a party, everyone went there to have a good time. And it was a really great bunch of people. And I made, I made lifelong, like people I'm still good friends with. I talked to Shuli Callen, who was my, my coach for a while. And then we played, we were on a, in a show, um, the living room show, the recliners for a year. We talked like twice a week. You know, she's still in LA. I did hear that though. I heard IO West had a great community. There was like a real sense of community when you went there. You kind of felt that immediately. Yeah. And I don't know how much it changed because when I left LA, they were just building the new theater. And I was part of it. I helped build the new theater, like physically went in there. Because you were told, if you're not going to come help build it, don't expect to perform here. And 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 oh, two of the guys from Beer Shark Mice, like uh, Pete Homey and uh, Mike uh, Coleman, like they were carpenters. So they were like in charge of everything. And I remember being there. And I was just like moving broken glass where these mirrors were broken. I, you know, I, that's the one thing I remember. And I was told, you're always welcome to perform here. But when I came back, that wasn't true because Sharna was more involved. And um, Sharna invited all these alumni who never came down to the original I.O. At least that's what I was told. And, and they were allowed to perform, but it's like they never came down when it was like a smaller place. Um, but I did go back once and it was impressive to see the space and saw Beer Shark Mice. So just to ask, so you trained at the Groundlings. Mm -hmm. um, did you do all the levels? Did you do the two levels and then the two sketch levels? I did two levels. I did two levels and I had to repeat level two. And at the end of the course, they give you like individual notes. And if you're ready to move on, like the groundlings just don't move you. They were the first place where it's like, they're very strict. Like you have to audition to get into the level one class. And it's really just to see if you can take instruction. Like almost everyone passes that audition. I don't know if they still do that. Um, but Karen said to me, I remember the note, I remember vividly. She said, you know, David, your comedy's bang on, but you can't act. And I said, I know. And she went, thank God. Because <laughs> it was, you know, it's the hardest thing to tell someone. Yeah. And she's like, you're not ready to move on to level two. I'm like, that's fine. She's like, I think you need to take an acting class. And so I did. And I repeated level two. At the same time, I'd started at the IO West. And I don't know what level I was in. And that was confusing, taking classes at both. Because the theories of comedy and improv at both are different, right? At the, at the Groundlings, it was very much big characters. Comedy comes from big characters. Yeah. If you go see a Groundlings show, lots of big characters, right? And... The iOS was all like, you know, it was like play the scene, you know, and game, game. What's the game? And I, which I don't really believe in anymore, right? It was like game and scene. Um, but, you know, like play the scene, let things happen, see what's going to happen. Yeah. So in the same week, I think, at, at the iOS, I brought up this big character. My instructor was like, I know what you're doing. Like, we're not the characters yet. Don't worry about doing characters. <laughs> and in the Groundlings, we were doing freeze tag, which I hate. I don't think freeze tag is improv. I hate freeze tag. Um, it's, it's just jokes, right? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it myself. Yeah, and I did a callback to a character that I'd done before, and and Karen was like, "Stop! I know what you're doing. Don't do that again." So, <laughs> so one was contradicting the other. So I struggled for a while to get like 
the two together. And I remember, you know, at the end of the term, Karen said to me, she goes, you know, you struggled for a few weeks. I said, yeah, I'm very aware. And she goes, but you're ready for level three. But at the time at the Groundlings, it took like a year to get into level three. And you had to go to, you know, you had to show up, you know, they expected to see you, they expect you to come to show. I remember getting phone calls like, Hey, David, there's a producer coming tonight. Can you come see the show? I'm like, sure. Will it be a comp from like, no, it's $10. I'm like, whoa. You know? And I was like, at the time I was like, look, if I'm in Toronto, I can go see the second city main stage for free to improv any night. So the concept of paying to see an improv show was new to me. Although I had paid for the iOS, but being called to, can you come and fill the audience? And it's like, I need to pay. I'm not coming and paying if you want me to fill the audience. Yeah. Cause you're doing them a favor. <laughs> I'm doing you a favor. And, um, but I really got into it at the IO and there was just opportunity for stage time. Socially, I liked it. And, um, I made good friends and I made friends, people in my class, like I made people, friends, people in my class at, at the Groundlings as well, but it was just different, a different vibe. And, and there were all these people from Chicago and they were accessible. Mm. Like I remember Jenna Jolovitz, who was one of the people who changed my life. Like I was really influenced by, by a group of like my whole career, Early on in particular, I, I played with some tremendous female performers who really influenced me and taught me, you know. Um, but Jenna Jolovitz is this legendary Chicago main stage alumni. I think she did five or six main stage shows. She was in Pinata Full of Bees, this landmark show at the Second City. Wow. Um, and I was, I don't know if I did a show. I think I was just maybe hanging out watching shows. I remember seeing her on stage and being blown away. And then I was out in front of the theater. We were hanging out. I was talking and she was standing there and she interjected and she talked to me. And I remember my response was, uh, I couldn't talk to her. <laughs> so scared to say a word to her, but she became one of my best friends. Oh, why? You know, and then we did a show together. We did the recliner show together for like a year. Um, and Shuby Callum was a coach of mine, of uh, one of my, not my first Herald team, one of the Herald and she was great. And we, and she as well, we, we happened to live across the street from each other. You know, so we hung out a lot. That's mad. And, um, and Jenna and Shuli at the time were really close friends. So we hung out and, and Jeff came and who I was, I was friendly with Jeff, but he was putting together, I, I don't know if we were on the same Herald team yet, but, um, he was putting together a living room show, which is a format, you know, a Chicago format. Uh, uh, nobody was doing it and there were opportunities to put on shows at the IO, right? And that's the other thing. It's the first time I got to produce a show. So I was just there at the right time. And, and one of Jeff's good friends, Ron, said, no, I don't want to do the show. And I was there and it came up and it's like, I'll do the show. And that show changed my life. Like, so, because Jenna Jolovitz and Shuli Cowan did the show. These are Chicago alumni and it raised our game, getting to perform with them. Um, and everyone, you know, we grew tight. Like we rehearsed and we had a coach and uh, Dan Doyle and Josh Belson, you know, and um, Lindsay and Sean, Jenna, Jenna getting married. Like we, and we had a regular show for a year. And we changed the form. We nuanced the format. And, and I remember the first night we did the show, everyone showed up at the theater. And we had this killer show. And we did the show, I think it was Saturday nights at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. Um, but then, you know, in LA, it's hard to get an audience. And the show kind of, you know, we decided to stop it. But um, by that time, you know, I was on, uh, you know, Jeff and I, like Jeff and I performed together probably for four years, Jeff Cameron and I. And then I think we both started coaching around the same time. Like started, I, I expressed an interest in coaching a team. Mm. It was like, I think I have something to offer. And that's what led me to teaching, you know? And I remember my coach, Bill Glass, uh, he coached our, you know, after Shuley, we built, you know, I remember Bill Glass coach a couple, you know, for blanking, we were called Chacharelli at the time and, and maybe then roller skate skinny, you know, you know, you think of names for teams, it, just, it doesn't matter. But um, Bill would, when he'd give you notes, he'd spin out, well, you could have done this and then this and this, and then and he'd spin out a whole scene. And I remember thinking, how do you do that? And then in like three years after coach, I was doing, and it's just about learning and experience. And 
So what would you say is the biggest things you learned in that period of time in L.A.? Uh, the LA is a sewer with golden bars. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more from an improv perspective. <laughs> no, I know. Um, the trust, like, like, you know, and to give blind trust, like I'd done some shows with people who I didn't know and, and, and they gave me blind trust and made great shows. And I remember when I lived in LA, I went to Vancouver for like maybe a week to visit professor David short. Then he wasn't professor, my cousin. And I had met, I met Roman Danilo out in LA. He was a Canadian uh, improviser from Vancouver. And I did a show out there and, you know, met some of the improvisers and they all gave me blind trust. And, and that's the thing at a certain level, people are like, oh, you should contact this person. And, and you know, you get like a recommendation to play, but trust was a big thing. Um, I learned who not to trust. <laughs> um, uh, I learned what my crutches were at the time. My coach threw a fit once. I'm not going to say who it was, but he threw this fit. Like, if I ever hear you talk about, if I ever fucking hear you talk about Judaism or Canada again, you're going to hand me, you're going to find me hanging from the fucking, fucking rafters of the theater. Oh my God. Because <laughs> I would drop it in every now and then, you know, can a Canada reference or Jewish, because I'm Jewish. And, and I will go super Jewy sometimes on stage. And, and, um, uh, Shuli said to me what Shuli Coward said. She goes, if I hear you or Dan, Dan Weiss, who was one of my original coaches and he was in bitter Noah and we're all, you know, we're Jews. Um, she said, if I know you were Dan or Dan, she goes, I'm going super Jew. And so there's <laughs> be like a show within the show just for the Jews with references. And it's like too bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, Bill banned me for like, I remember thinking he was really being unfair with me because Dan would always mention, back in Milwaukee, you know, in Milwaukee, back in Wisconsin, I never got a note. Catholic school, let me tell you something about Catholic school. Never got a note on Catholic school. Oh, for God's sake. But I mentioned like Rosh Hashanah, my coach had a fit. And then I mentioned it to Jenna. I think he's being harsh. And Jenna's also Jewish. And she said, maybe he's right. Maybe you do mention it too much. So I didn't mention Canada or Judaism for a year because in my monologues, I'd often bring it up monologues were one of my strengths. Like if you give me a word, like, you know, we would, you know, cause in Chicago style monologues are a big part of whatever form you're doing, whether it's the Herald of Candy part of the opening, or if you're doing an Armando or something else, um, uh, you could give any word and I would just have a story right away. It would spark something in me. Mm. Um, and how did you train yourself to get like that? Is that something you naturally did or is that something you worked on? It's just something I became good at. I was natural at it. And as well, well the biggest thing I learned one day, I learned I have to be aggressive um, and not in a bad way because you're always taught to attack the stage. And I, I'm Canadian. We're very nice people. We're very polite. And um, uh, Bill Glass used to yell at us, you're also polite. Why don't you just write each other notes about what you want to do? And uh, so thank you so much. And, you know, he was hilarious, but he was accurate with that. And uh, one day during rehearsal, he said, hey, so we're going to do one person, one man herald. And, and that's like a herald that one person, one person for every character in the scene. Um, it's a thing they used to do in Chicago, uh, and they, you know, they apparently pull the name out of a hat and that person's doing it. I think it was called Night of the Newton Herald. I could be totally wrong, but I remember being told, I remember Rich Fulcher uh, telling me about it, um, cause he eventually directed me. I started taking on the one man Herald cause I was apparently good at it, but Bill had each of us do about 10 minutes of a solo Herald. Um, and you can either jump back and forth and play all the characters, or you could be like, no, I didn't say applesauce. I said peanuts. I know you meant to buy peanuts. You could like answer you could kind of infer what the other character was saying by answering them or something. Yeah. And were you intimidated by this though? Like the idea of doing a one man Harold would frighten a lot of people. Well, no. So here's the thing. Doing it in rehearsal, I just did it. We did 10 minutes. And Bill said to me, he goes, I wish you played like that all the time. Mm. And because you have to be, I had to be aggressive. There's no time to think. Yeah. And um, I remember 
you know, like Rich Fulcher was friends, you know, some of my Chicago friends told me, oh, you know, it's a thing people used to do. It's, it's, you could actually do it. Um, and then there was a theater wide meeting, right. And, um, Scott Robinson, who was my guru of improv, one of the unsung heroes. And Scott Robinson is one of the founders of the Anoints Theater. He taught me level three. I found his class to be life-changing. Um, like his stuff just really worked. How so? He, I don't know. There was just something about him and his stuff that really connected with me. His notes were bang on. He taught me the technique for like no pausing. Like, you know, I always mention his name. When I teach people, I have four techniques for getting out of your head. And one of them is no gaps in dialogue. And Scott taught me that. It was something he developed at the Benoyance. And when I teach it, I'm like, Scott Robinson from the Annoyance taught me this. I always give him 100% credit because he taught it to me. And um seeing him perform on stage, he was just magic. And I remember getting to play with him. I remember being in a show with him once and just like, I got to step out with him. Yeah. I don't remember anything other than that. Just, I got to step out. With him. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but um, I used to sit in on his class from time to time. Cause if you had, you know, if I was a level four or five, you could go sit in on lower level classes if they weren't full and participate. Oh, why? But I really liked his class. It, it just, you know, and he did an exercise. It was the most fun I ever had in a class where he'd have everyone on stage and we're, you know, we've all been in this, you know, from level one to three, mostly together. So, so about six months together, we're all walking on the stage in a circus. Like, okay. And everyone start walking like David Shore and everyone starts walking and everyone start talking out loud, like David Shore. I was like, oh, <laughs> and everyone's making invitations. And then it's like, now everyone start walking like Dan Doyle. And, and he did it for everybody. And then he wrote down everyone's names on a piece of paper. And um, we did a couple different things where it's like, you pulled a name and that's the person you had to be. And you got six of like half the class was doing scenes. Maybe we were doing it. I don't think we were doing a Herald at that point. And then, um, yeah. So then I, we did it. And then I was sitting watching the other half of the class and Scott was giggling. Like I was sitting in the front beside my friend, Amy and Scott, and Scott's giggling. He whispers to Amy and the wispy, uh, Amy whispers to me, Scott wrote down Dan Doyle's name on six pieces of paper and gave it to one to everyone out there except for Dan. So everybody was doing Dan Doyle. And Dan, you could see Dan realize it. And, and, and it was hilarious. And um, I remember years later talking to Scott. He goes, yeah, I'm not allowed to do that exercise anymore. He goes, well, he goes a couple people complained. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, they were really hurt by it. I'm like, it's the best thing we ever did class because there was a revenge round where you could play in when you wanted and get revenge on them if they did you really well or make fun of you um but it was so funny and dan's the look on, like i love dan Dwell. we've talked about it the look on his face because he was very doable you could do i don't understand well you don't love me there's dan, dan doyle pre pre <laughs> before he became great dan became great before he was great everything was why don't you love me <laughs> um yeah but scott's class had a big impact on me um and then the woman Harold. So we had this theater-wide meeting, and Scott had developed the curriculum at the I.O. at the I.O. West. He did the curriculum, and at the time, James Grace was writing the theater. And Scott said, "No one's taking risks anymore at the meeting, and it's it's affecting the theater, like it's affecting the quality of the shows and everything." And I decided then I'm going to do the Woman Herald. Like I can't take a bigger risk than doing the Woman Herald. And then I avoided it like the plague. I didn't want to do it, you know. Really? It's funny. When I say avoided like the plague during a pandemic, it's got a different meaning. Um, <laughs> but I, I put it off. So you did it for a bit and then you just avoided no, it? I, I, no, I did it that one time. I did 10 minutes of it. Yeah. Right? And then I committed to doing it and put it off until my sister, Evie, came, she came for a visit. So if you're here, I'll do it when you're here. And I think I rehearsed it so I would, you know, and, you know, I'm pretty sure. 
I don't know if I rehearsed it for the first time. I'm pretty sure I did. And I mean, that means me going into a room at theater, which they were very cool about giving you space. You don't have to pay if this, if it wasn't being used at that time, you could use space for free. And I rehearsed it on my own in a room, which is a horrible feeling. Um, and then I was so mean to my sister the day, maybe not, I was just so angry. I was like, why are you here? And I got to do this fucking show. I didn't want to do it. I was so in my head. Because for a regular improv show, I'm never in my head because I don't know what's going to happen. But I kept thinking, I remember being in the shower, like, well, if someone suggests this, then I can tell you. Because I would do a five-minute monologue. That would be my opening. I would pull three things from that. In any case, you know, I do the show. And if everyone came out to see it, the theater was packed. And I had a killer show. It was amazing. Great. And um, Rich Fulcher, who I was good friends with at the time, was like, you know, no one really does who I'm in Herald anymore. And, you know, if you want to do it, it could be like your thing. And, you know, I could direct you if you want. And so we did that. Rich directed me. And I did it a number of times in L.A. And one time, <laughs> I always had to stretch. Because one time I did it without stretching before doing it. And I pulled every muscle in my body. Because it's such a physically exhausting show. Oh, big time. Because you're jumping out of chairs. It's, and it, it works your abs like crazy. You're jumping <laughs> in and out of chairs, playing different characters. I would do four-person scenes. I would do group scenes. I even did that. I remember Neil Flynn saying after he saw me do it once, he did the group game. And I was like, yeah. I was literally just about to ask you about that. So you did group games as well. I did, but I did them for a long time. I did them as a set. Like, cause I, we weren't taught them, but when you were in class, I taught you, here's games you can do that are group games. And those group games, like the talk show, like I called them, or I can't think the, the pat, I can't think of any other than the talk show right now. Um, but, uh, or the radio show. Or the um, word, you have to, you have to get a word. And then oh, you, you can spell the word, yeah. yeah. You can spell the suggestion. Yeah. So for a long time, I just did that. I did, I think, the talk show where I played two characters, and I spelt the word as one person, like, coming out and spelling the word. And um, later, like, I forget when it was, maybe in London or maybe in Toronto, I decided I'm not, I'm just, I'm just fucking doing whatever. I, I scrapped that. And it was, it was, it, sometimes it was a rogue scene, like an interesting, bizarre scene, or, you know, it's, it's just what it was. But... With Rich, like I got good at it. I remember stretching once before the show. And Rich was like, you got to wear a suit when you do it. And I'm like, I can't. I'm like, I'm, I'm sweating like a dog. Like, and he's like, well, what are you trying to get across from doing it? And I said that I'm professional. He's like, you got to wear a suit and tie, man. You got to like, use a jacket. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'll be uncomfortable. And then I remember before a show once, I um, I was stretching and I split my pants right up the middle. Uh, and I was like, fuck. And Lolly Ward, who was on my Herald team, was like, oh, I've got some, some safety pins. So I safety pinned up. My crotch. Oh, what a way to go on stage. And then told the audience. Oh, did you? You know, I told the audience, if you hear me scream, it's real. You know, because I explained what happened. <laughs> it's before Second City had a training center there and they tried um, putting on a professional show there. Like, and they had a, a lot of alumni and Scott was in the, Scott Robinson was in the show and, and Rachel Dratch, who went on to do Saturday Night Live. Why? And I went to go see it. It was at the Improv, you know, and it was this killer show. And they came out. In suits. The guys were in jackets and ties and the women in blacks, just like Bitter Noad. And there was another alumni. I, I remember talking later with another alumni of Chicago. Like, and when I say alumni, I mean like Second City Chicago or, or iOS, like Brian Blondell. And he said, yeah, it just commands respect. And so after that, I always wore a jacket and tie when I did the Women Herald. Um, and I was getting, you know, nowhere in LA. And so I, I, I came back to Toronto and did a run of the One Man Herald at the Tim Sims Playhouse, which was in the second city. It was her second theater. And I thought, if I can get a good agent, I'll move home. And I got a ton of press, um, like that article where, you know, I think I don't know if you know, I mentioned about the guy said, he discovered moments before going on stage and his father passed away. Like, and I, you know, TV interviews, and I made money 
and I decide, and I got a good day. I said, I'm moving home. And, and through a weird set of circumstances, I get a phone call from an old friend of mine, um, Kim Carroll, who was in that show at Ryers with me, Ryan. She's like, Hey, Sandy Joe and Ben's leading the main stage cast. So, and they don't, they don't feel they have someone in the tour co ready. They're looking outside of the company for a replacement. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So I called a friend of mine in LA, Jack Mosshammer, who was a second city Toronto. I'm like, what's the job exactly? What are the hours of this? And then I called the producer who I had met because he came and saw my woman, Harold. And he was blown away. And we talked about me doing some workshops with the main stage cast and the tour co. And so I called him. I said, hey, you're, I hear you have an opening as we do. I said, I'd like to come in and talk to you about it. And we had a chat and, and we agreed that I would do two improv sets. Um, and, and I gave him references. And then I, I did the sets. And I wasn't as aggressive as I'd normally be because I was like a guest and apparently all kinds of rumors. Were going, Who's this, who the fuck's this guy? There's a lot of that going around, apparently. Who's this guy? You know? <laughs> but maybe not as, you know, and I went back to I went back to LA to pack up and then I got a call saying you got the job. And I was thrilled. How did that feel though? Like it was amazing to come back with like this job that I'd never I thought it was too old to get. And it's like, you know, and it's a coveted job and I really wanted it. Well, yeah, Second City main stage is huge. It's a big thing. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't know that I was a hundred percent ready. Like, you know, like, like the show that the one show that I wrote was this killer show. We had a killer cast, like three. And I, you know, I, I, I was one of the girls cause the guys would have nothing to do with me. So, um, um, and that's the thing. There were all these politics at second city. It was terrible. It was very, they believe in the fear theory of management. I mean, there's been a reckoning recently that you know, everyone in the improv world is aware of and, and a change in ownership and management. And I hope it's for the better. Um, but they treated people really poorly. But that being said, it's, it's, it shows up on your resume and it, it's a big deal. And the show that I did do psychedelic Catessum, was an award-winning show. It was a killer show. And the women, Aurora Brown and Caroline Taylor, you know, they're two of the Baroness Baronesses from Baroness von Sketch show. And oh, wow. people in the UK, if you haven't seen that, you should. And Jennifer Goodhue, the other woman, she's, she's, writes on tons of shows and she was also a writer on Baron's Fun Sketch and she appears in lots of episodes. And the men were, you know, like, well, I had issues with the guys at time because they would ignore me on stage, right? Like literally. Really? If I was doing an improv scene with one of them and the other came out, they would ignore me. And how did you combat that? Like, what did you, how, how did you respond to that? There's nothing I could do. You know, one night we were doing a set. So like you do the show, which is a written show. And afterwards you do a free improv set. So we're doing a set. And um, they're doing a scene, the two guys, the two Pauls. It, look, they know, we've talked about it. I am good friends with them now, and, and they both do Monkey Toast. And, and Jen Goodhue and I, like, when I left Second City, I swore I'd never work with Jen Goodhue again. We couldn't be on stage together. But we were, like, I haven't seen her in a long time, but we're really tight. We bonded like crazy. And she talks all the time about, like, being on that stage does things to you. It makes you who you're not. And, 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 she wasn't proud of who she was. And, and, uh, and I did things I regretted. Like I was really arrogant when I came in there. Um, do, do you mean that there's so much pressure and there's such an expectation when you're on that main stage of where you're going to go next, that kind of thing? Yeah, there's pressure. Well, there's, or just being there, like line counting, like there's no support. Like I remember going to Chicago 50th anniversary and, and I went to the, the founder's brunch and Bernie Salas is, people are reading all these tributes to Bernie Salas and he was 80 years old and he gave us notes and everybody was crying. And I'm like, nobody, there's no one in Toronto. Like if you have a problem, there's just the guy who's going to fire you to go to if you have a problem. Like I used to go to Bob Durkatch, who was the musical director and he was there for 25 years and I would ask him for advice and, um, but with the guys, you know, there was nothing I could do. Like, cause you're, the show is directed 
And then the director leaves. Like you work for 10 weeks on the show and the director's gone and there's no one there to tell the rest of the cast, like, hey, you're being a dick or whatever. What are you doing is unprofessional. So one night we're doing the set and the two Pauls are fishing. And I came out, I went to the audience and I was, a, I was running around like a fish, like a fish on a hook. And they ignored me. And Jen Goodhue comes out and she goes, hey, you caught a fish. <laughs> <laughs> but there's lots of people, you know, like when I, I, the second show I wrote, I, you know, I got fired for, I got scapegoated by the director and I reached a point where I thought I was losing my mind writing that show. And when I spoke to other alumni, you know, I thought I was losing my mind. They're like, oh yeah, like they get it, you know, like it's, and no one judged me. No one who was an alumni judged me. And I was off, like there were, in Toronto, there were all these cliques that I wasn't aware of because I came out of nowhere. Right. I wasn't aware that there's these cliques and we had a big green room and, and one of the cliques would come and hang out sometimes on a Saturday night when we had two shows, people would come and hang out and I would be there and I would interject and they would all ignore me. Wow. And I was like, okay. But when I got fired, all those people who ignored me were furious that I got fired and treated that way. And they all rallied around me. Everyone, ra- everyone rallied around me. Everyone was like, I'll work, I want, I will be happy to work with you. That must have been, that must have felt weird. Well, it was good. I mean, I didn't perform for a while. I, 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 I went like writing that show, Insanity Fair. <laughs> Every now and then, at Second City, the show is just not that good. Insanity Fair was one of that shows. Even when the show opened, they still had to come in for a couple of weeks and write. I remember Jim Gidhu saying to me, like, I saw her. She's like, "Oh my god, I'm so, you know, we still have to come in and write the show. Like, it's not done. Like, it's open and it's not done. And it's just the reality. Sometimes the show doesn't work." You know, it's not, it's not great. And they have to keep working on it. And, and the producer admitted to me like a couple of years later, it was a mistake to fire. I shouldn't have fired you in the way I did. You know, it was a mistake. And I found out after from the associate producer that, yeah, it was the director threw me under the bus and um, blamed everything on me, which wasn't true. And, you know, one of the alumni who saw the show and, and, and uh, wrote me a, a letter, like one of the, one of the Paul, uh, uh, Paul, there were two Pauls in my cast and one of them left. When I say the one who left wrote me this beautiful letter about, hey, man, I heard what happened to you. It is bullshit. You know, um, I saw the show and uh, you're not the problem because the show still has problems. <laughs> and I will work with you. I'm happy to work with you and make sure you put Second City on your resume because you accomplished a lot while you were there. And it meant so much to me. Yeah, I can imagine. To get that email from him. Yeah. And I heard that from lots of people. I heard what happened to you and here's what happened to me. And That must have been... Very surreal though at the time, considering like you you've done the one man Harold. Yeah. You've got a lot of heat behind you with that. Yeah. To the point that you're on the second city main stage, which most people would kill to get on. You're an award winning show. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're in a nightmare scenario where, you know, the show's not working. You're you're having a horrible time in the environment. And not just me, the whole cast, right? Everyone struggled. That show, you know, Mike Kennard was look, Mike Kennard was the director. I'll say his name. He's the nicest guy in the world. But I told him, like, we went out for lunch after. And I said, Mike, your, you know, your process didn't work. And he started defending himself. I said, Mike, I got fired. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, because he's a clown. Like, he's literally like, you know, like a, a, you know, like a bouffant clown. And we had to do all this clown work. And I hate, so I hate clowns. <laughs> I hate doing clowns. I mean, I've seen some good clowns, but I will never, you'll never get me in a clown class or put on, or put on another red nose. Okay, fair enough. Um, and I have no ill will towards Mike. He's a great guy. And he did what he thought was right. But. You know, he threw me under the bus and I found, and I knew it. And then I had to find out, yeah, he threw me under the bus. And it's like, you know what, shit happens. And, uh, you know, shit happens. No, no, I I get that. And obviously it's horrible to experience it. But, you know, I suppose for anybody listening 
that goes through that, you know, to have, you know, a, a fair amount of success in a short period of time and then to just have such a fall from grace all of a sudden, like, how do you come back from that? How did you motivate yourself to get back on stage? Well, well, yeah, so that's, it's a, it's a good question. So before I started, um, before I got the, the gig at the main stage, I was going to do an Armando style show in Toronto, which is Monkey Toast, you know, which we are in our 19th, I mean, it's a pandemic, but we're in our 19th year, you know, and then that's where you and I met at Monkey Toast UK, you know, when I was living in UK. So that was always my plan. And then I got the main stage. So it's like when I started to get into performing again, I'm like, well, I'm putting together a show. And it was an all-star show. And we couldn't call it the Armando because of, you know, for reasons. And Monkey Toast was a rejected name from the second city that I liked. And I just, you know, so it stuck with me and it became Monkey Toast. Well, was it, was it meant to be the name of a show at Second City or was it just like... A- it was a, It was an option. It was one of the... There's all these, like when you're writing a show, there's all these ways you try to pick a name. And um, one of the things you do is you put these big sheets of paper on the wall and they're folded in half and you write, I forget it was, you write verbs and then adjectives, verbs on one side and adjectives on the other, or ad, I forget. But you write words on one side and words on the other. Then at the end of the night, which might be 3 a.m., like you've, you've done the show, which you've put in new sketches. Then you do the improv set, which isn't improv anymore. You're trying out scenes and you get notes. You might be done at like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. And then it's like, let's see what we got. Let's see what we open up the piece of paper and you see, you read off what they are. One of the things was monkey toast. So I was like, oh, I really like, I, I kept voting. That was my vote always. So I never, I remember, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Carolyn Taylor tried for like, the whole time I was there, I kept trying to get Troutrageous as a name for a show. But um, yeah. And then the show before was Psychedelic Atessin, which actually, often there's, the title of the show has nothing to do with the show, but Psychedelic Atessin does and that, or did, and that show, it's funny, the name came about because we were just hanging, we had a name for the show. I think it was the Joint Chiefs or something, like we picked, and then we were hanging out backstage and someone said something about Delicatessen, and I think Paul Bates went, Psychedelicatessen? Like, it just kind of happened, and we were like, ooh, Psychedelicatessen, and <laughs> that became the name of the show. And that was, you know, that was a, it was an award-winning, it was a great show, it was rock, that show was rock solid. Um and sorry, you asked me, what, how do I come back? It's interesting you asked that because for me, you know, when I did Monkey Toast, um, I think we did it for seven, eight years before I moved to London and I wrapped it up like the show, like I'm wrapping up the show just because it's like a, from a producing standpoint, no one's going to want to produce it. And it's just, you know, and, and, it, and it's a certain level and I don't want that to be diminished, you know, like it's not going to be as good a show. Um but on that final night, we did two shows and I had everyone in the show, like, like we had 12 regular cast members who rotated like six a show. So you were in the first half of the show, the second half of the show. And I didn't book guests because it's Monkey Toast. I interview celebrities or, or well-known people in the city. And then we improv based off the interview. Right. Um, so I didn't book any guests and I randomly picked, we, everyone got a raffle, like a ticket with a number on it when they came in and I randomly picked numbers and audience members came up and were guests and we all attempted to an audience member and a member of the cast who was sitting in the audience. Oh, why? So at one point, Paul Constable got pulled up, right? And he said to me, he goes, I don't know how you stuck around. Actually, I sounded just like Paul Constable in my mind. <laughs> um, he's like, if I was you, I would have left town. Like what happened to you? He goes, I can't believe you stayed and you did, you put on this, you put, did, you built this show that's amazing. And, and he goes, I would have left. And I'm like, well, I'm from Toronto. So there was no option for me to leave. So that was the thing. It was never a thought in my mind of like, I'm not, I'm leaving and I'm never going to perform again. That never crossed my mind. And I was lucky that I got support. I reached out for help. That's the key. If you, like, I was seriously depressed. Like I lost 25 pounds. I didn't eat. I didn't get out of bed. And um, 
I had a good friend at the time in New York who was a doctor in New York City, and he said, um, "You got to get it." I can't do his accent. He's got He's like, "You got to get out of bed. You got to go for a walk. You know, hear my voice. Get out of bed." And um, I was lucky that I got into treatment quickly, like like um, cognitive behavioral therapy (CBT), and it helped me. And um, I got my OCD under control for the rest of my life. I mean, it, the, the the truth be told, the pandemic triggered my OCD in a bad way. Bad way. Oh, why? And I'm not alone. Like lots of people who have dealt with their anxiety and have their controls. Like, great pandemic. You know, it's like, um, and then it was a matter of, okay, I'm producing a show. And I had producing experience from the iOS where I produced a show. What was the show I produced? The Deconstruction Derby, because the Deconstruction was a format we all learned and no one did. So it was an all-star show, an excuse to put on a show with different cast members and get some Chicago people to play. And so we did the show and it was great. And, and it morphed over time. And, and we won, I think the first year we were nominated, won the Canadian Comedy Award for Best Improv Show. And it just kind of became this thing. And, and it was all the best players. And it changed over time. Like it, it used to be much more like an Armando, but then CBC Radio got involved and they're like, we need a host and a guest if we're going to do a radio pilot and you're the host. And, uh, and so we changed. We worked with them for a year on changing the format and we did a pilot and um, it didn't get picked up, but I liked the change and we kept it. So, um, yeah, the key is, it was hard, you know, it was terrible. I got cried a lot. I'm not ashamed to talk about it because it's not, like I know in the UK, it's interesting I know it changed a bit while I was there. People never talked about their emotions or if they were struggling. And I know that changed in my tenure at the UK. And I remember my biggest fear was people finding out my OCD, that I was suffering when I was really going, before I finished the treatment, like I couldn't drive at night. I could not get in a car at night. Why? I had to be home by a certain time because I had my panic attack at night in the car, right? And so I couldn't do it. And that was the last thing I worked on. If anyone does, has done CBT, make a hierarchy of what, gives you anxiety the most and you work through it once from the least this gives me a little bit of anxiety to the most um but i was terrified about people finding out and judging me and when i did confide in people i found no one judged me bottom line is nobody cared <laughs> everyone's got their own shit and lots of people are like my sister does that my i got a friend that does that yeah once you start talking about it everyone kind of knows someone that's gone through it yeah 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 i've got a friend can you recommend and it's different for different people like cbt doesn't work for every type of anxiety and um but it was and you have to have a good uh therapist i i was very lucky to get into a good program you know and it was free and my sisters had said to me look we'll pay for your treatment why you know but i was lucky that i got in this free program so they didn't have to pay for it so i've always been very lucky that i with family support you know, I'm very close to my sisters, my older sisters, and my mother, um, and my cousin, Professor David Troy, you've mentioned many times. And in Toronto as well, I was never ostracized by the improv community. Lisa Merchant is one of my best friends. Like, I have so many friends, you know, Jan Kirwana, you know, and even though I don't see a lot of them a lot, like, it's like during the pandemic, it's been hard. I really miss everybody. You know, that's been hard. Yeah. You know, these people are so talented, and they're all such good people, you know, and when I moved to the UK, there was outpouring. There was like a couple of goodbye shows and the outpouring was tremendous. You really find, when you leave somewhere, you can find out the impact you've had on people. So I've had that twice. When I, when I left Toronto and when I left London, like it was tremendous to see like people were like, you changed my life, your class has changed this, or I love, you know, your show has meant this to me. So there's not a lot of money in it. 
but there's a lot of personal <laughs> satisfaction. But th- that's amazing, though. So you went through this awful time, and then you just got back on your feet. Well, and it took time, right? And it took time. It wasn't like an overnight thing. It took time. Of course. So you but you started out, you reached out to good improvisers that you knew. You started performing. Like the show that I was fired from, hmm. I went back to do the improv set with the cast. Oh, wow. How was that? And I remember there was, um, it was weird because I remember there being David Shores coming. There was some people who worked in the building were nervous that I was going to do something. And I remember Matt Watts, who's a well-known comedy writer in Canada. He was the uh, assistant director on that show, brought it to help write. And him and I bonded really well. And, and um, we were at the time very close. And I remember he met me in the parking lot and hugged me. And he said, people are, there's, you know, so-and-so saying, oh, David, you're worried about you. I'm like, it's ridiculous. So I went backstage, hung out in the dressing room. Cause I was like, I can't watch the show. I just can't, but I'm here to do the improv set. And a lot of people are like, how could you do that? And someone said to me later, like, and then Steve Morell who fired me, I had him in, in monkey toast. Why? Cause we'd made our piece. And, and he, the thing is he fired me, but he hired me. He gave me that opportunity. Like, so the alumni really rallied around because they know only the alumni know what it's like to work there. Yeah. Well, it's just nice that you, you get that support. Yeah. So how did that feel that, so you, you, you set up Monkey Toast, you, it's going for a few years, you won some awards with Monkey Toast as well, is that right? Yeah, we won, the first year we won the Canadian Common for Best Improv Show, and then we were nominated like a billion times, and then we won a number of our players, like Jan Caruana won Best Female Improviser, and, and Carrie Griffin won Best Male, and I think, I think, pardon me, I think Lisa Merchant won Best Female Improviser, and Janet Vandegraaff, like there were a number of people who won individual Pardon me, but we never won the big award again. It got, I think the award's got a bit political after that. That's <laughs> like the Eurovision. So how did that develop you as a performer, though, having made that comeback after what had happened and setting up your own show, producing it, and it go- going really well and getting like critical recognition for it? How did that develop you? I, I don't know that it helped me. As a, I don't know, to be honest. Like, because to be honest, eventually the show shifted and I became a host and I became good at interviewing. And actually, that actually led to me getting work at Reader's Digest Canada. When we were workshopping the show with this with the CBC, they took me into the building and taught me how to do interviews. So, you know, that's a real pardon me. That's a real skill I developed and I enjoyed doing. And then, um, but you know, the show, you know, it's like how much you charge for a show. We don't charge enough. We've never charged. Most improv shows don't charge enough because you want an audience, and it's a it's a thing. And unless you have a big production, it's hard to charge what you're worth. So it's not like I was making a living off of Monkey Toast. Yeah. And how do you prepare for shows? Well, if I'm doing the inter- like the thing, if I'm hosting, I have, to, I have to conduct interviews. Like I have to, I have to mean, I have to do research and write up the interviews. I have to be very prepared for the show. But if you're just improvising, like if you were performing in the Armando, how would you prepare yourself for going on stage or when you were performing at Second City? I would just show up. I would make sure I'm dressed properly for one thing. You have to dress properly. You might remember that from class with me. I won't let you on stage if you're not dressed properly. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. Because it's, it's true. That was a thing at the IOS. It came down. It's like people go, people wear shorts and flip-flops on stage and someone comes to see a show and you look like a bum who just walked in off the street and is on stage. And it's just... Like I said, that time I saw that Second City show where they all come out in blacks and it was just like, boom, the lights came up. They were all there in black, you know, in suits and ties and, and all wearing black. It commands respect. So you don't necessarily have to wear a jacket and tie, but what's the dress code for this show? You know, so, but I would just show up and I would be, I'd be on time, right? And if I'm running late for some reason, I would text who's ever running the show, hey, I'm running late, but I'm on my way. Because, you know, things can happen especially in Toronto traffic, as it's known. Um, and I would promote the show as well. But that's, you know, but I'm just, I was, you know, there's, I don't, 
for me, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing to prepare. I just show up and I'm ready to go. If I'm doing the one man Herald, I stretch before the show and I would rehearse it, the format, which I hate doing. <laughs> do you mean like because it's just me in a room it's just me in a room right so, but when you say rehearse do you mean you would rehearse how you would I would do a one man herald alone in a room really yeah I would get it I would open a book get a word you know for a suggestion when I moved to London Rich Fulcher was there so he actually got together and rehearsed and that was great I got notes the first time in like 10 years or however long it was um, yeah but I, for some reason it's you know a lot of performers are all a little superstitious, not all, but a little superstitious. So because I always rehearse it, it's like, I still have to rehearse it. It's like, I hate, I don't know that it helps. I remember um, Paul Valancourt, who opened the IO, and Pete, um, well, I'm blanking on Pete's last name, but the first two Prov I ever saw was in LA. And it, was, it was Peter and Paul explain it all. And um, Pete, Gart, Pete Gart, right? They're both Chicago alumni. Peter later was a member of Bitter Noah. Great, great improvisers. And that show blew my mind. Because I remember, you know, like like TJ and Dave of the Gold Standard, everyone think they invented two prop, but they didn't. And you know, and I don't. That's not to say that that they stole this. No one's claiming ownership. But you know, when I came from um, uh, Toronto to London, everyone assumed I was from Chicago, which I never said. And everyone's like, "Oh, you must have seen TJ and Dave." It's like, no, I never saw it. Like they uh, they probably came to Toronto, but I didn't see them for not for reasons like I don't want to see them. Because when I did see them in London, I'm like, holy shit, those guys are amazing. You know, and, 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 um, you know, I could see why everyone, we're doing two prof like TJ and David. It's like, why don't you just do your own thing? (laughs) (laughs) But Peter and Paul, they, they were the first people I ever saw. They play multiple characters. Plus they play each other's characters seamlessly. Why? And I remember talking to them. I think I was rehearsing the woman Harold and they were at the theater rehearsing and we were, we were just chatting. And, I, and they were like, yeah, I was like, because it's going on. Like, I love your show. Your show's so great. And they're like, yeah, there's lots of time just rehearsing it where it's like, there's nothing. Because you're doing it alone. You didn't have, they didn't have a director. And when you're in a room alone without a director and audience, it's hard, right? It's just, there's no energy. So it was interesting to hear that from them. Yeah. Um, and then it's interesting because, you know, I, I probably because of TJ and Dave, Two Prov is so popular. Um, to their credit, right? They're so good at it. Like anyone who has an opportunity to see TJ and Dave should see TJ. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, they're incredible. Like, like, like they're, they're amazing. And you mentioned earlier um, when you were in LA, you got into coaching and teaching. Uh, yeah. Did you did you get more into it when you got to when you set up Monkey Toast, or was it like a gradual thing? At the time, James Grace was running the IO, and I felt I was ready to coach. I said, "Hey, I'd like to coach. I think I'm ready to coach." And he was like, "Yeah, give me a couple months." I'll get you a team. And then like within a week, he's like, I got a team for you. <laughs> and just so you know, they're in trouble. Like their old coach kind of fucked them up. So, but, but I started coaching and coach, you sh- I'm a firm believer that you coach and then you teach like coaching because at the time at the IO, you got paid five bucks. Like, you know, if I was on a team and we had some coaching us, we each paid them $5. It was just, and, and if we had to rent a room, the team paid for the room, mm-hmm. you know, just the way it was. So you made a little bit of money coaching, but it wasn't about the money. And then when I moved to Toronto, like, Chicago style, like long form, the Herald wasn't really known here. Like when people came and saw my one man Herald, they talked about, oh, I, I, I learned to Herald. And then when I see them do a Herald, I'm like, where's the Herald? Because <laughs> I think Dale Close came up here and taught them something different. Like Dale did come up here for a while. But I remember seeing a Herald show and saying some, where's the Herald? Like I don't, you did a montage. Um, so I taught the first class at Second City. Toronto Herald class and was my own curriculum. And then, oh, why? So, when I was on the main stage, so because I think Jack Moss never told me, he goes, you know, if you're, if you're on the main stage, you could probably you can teach Saturday afternoons and then just stay there and do your shows at night. So, Saturdays were really long. I taught like a three hour class 
And then I'd crash on the couch in the green room for a couple <laughs> hours and do two shows, right? Like Saturdays were nights for two shows. Wow. Um, and then when I got fired, I started teaching more at Second City. So I taught the Herald class and people kept signing up for my class. Like people really resonated with my classes. So I developed a Herald 2 class where I taught the techniques for getting out of your head. Or maybe that's where I taught the Armando or other things. I can't remember. And then I developed like a get out of your head class and I started teaching at the Bad Dog Theater um, which I really enjoyed. And so I taught at both those places for a number of years and, um, took a break for a while when we were trying to sell Monkey Toast as a TV show because just the amount of time that took. And then I pretty sure I continued to teach until I moved to London. And then in London, my plan was to teach it, you know, to teach the two classes I knew, but I met Rob Broderick, a bando man mm-hmm. who was like, David, we need levels. <laughs> that's horrible, horrible. I made him sound from Liverpool. So that was, but he was like, we need levels. And then more of a Scottish twang there. <laughs> I can't, I used to be able to do accents until I moved to the UK and was like, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> well, um, but Rob, you know, and every, there's another show. If you get a chance to see Abandonment, holy shit, go see Abandonment. Yeah, 100%. I remember he, he played New York and I thought, I think, I, if I couldn't go, I was like, I wanted to go see him. I wanted so badly to see him. I was going to go to New York because he's that good. Um, and it'd be great to see him. He's a great guy. But he's the one who said to me, I'll go to an improv, I'll go to an improv workshop. There'll be 30 people. I'm like, 30 people? That's absurd. He goes, yeah. And some people have never taken the class again. So it was really, we could use a leveled structure. So I contacted Paul Valancourt, my original, one of my teachers from the iOS, and he helped me develop the, the beginning, like the level one class, like some with some of the exercises, I think. He was very helpful. And um, Rob Broderick spread the word, him and another woman just spread the word in the improv community and other people like Rob emailed everyone who had taken his comparing his MCing class. And I remember I got the email somehow and I was like, he's, ne-. I remember showing it to my wife that he's never taken a class with me. Like I better live up to this. And there was a real hunger because at the time, like there were some classes in, in London, but no one who was really teaching was qualified to teach and no one had a real structure. There wasn't like, I had a rigid, these are four levels of class and it doesn't matter which class you're in, you're all learning the same thing. It's the same syllabus. And even when it got bigger that I had to hire, like when I hired Carrie and Paul as the first instructors, I took them through, they were going to teach level ones and two. And I went, I, they came over to my place and or we met at the synagogue. Like I read the space of the synagogue, as you might remember, or at the yeah. Carpenter's Arms, the pub we taught over. Um, and we went through every exercise to make sure they were clear on everything, any questions. And then I sat in on the first two classes they had and the last two classes. And then every time someone new taught at Monkey Toast in the UK, I went through the curriculum with them, every exercise. And then I would sit in on their first two and last two classes just to make sure everything's running. Because like, I, well, I didn't want there to be, I was concerned about, because I, you know, classes I had taken in places, it was real, it could be like at the ground, it was a real crapshoot on who you got as a teacher. And I've heard all kinds of stories about the UCB as well, same thing. And lots of places are like that where there's no, and when I taught at Second City, like, I, you know, I do appreciate the work, but when I started teaching their level uh, C and D and E classes, right, from their, mm. you know, they, I think it's levels A to E, I was just given a huge thick thing of, here's exercises and pick what you want. And I was like, okay. Yes, yeah, so there's no consistency then in like what they're actually teaching. Well, yeah, and, there, and it might have changed. I can't speak for what's happening at Second City now, you know, with regards, because there's so many different levels and things now. Um, but to me, it just made sense of like people, you know, were, there was a, it was a word of mouth thing in London. There was such a demand for my classes. And I was like, I, I was really needed quality control. That must have felt great, though, to have that demand so early on when you arrive. But um, 
What do you focus on, though, as a teacher, David? Is there anything, any key things you zone in on? Yeah, I'm all about the basics. Uh, who, what, where? Who, what, where? Uh, where are you? People always forget. Space work. You know, I did a workshop in, I think, 2003 with Alan Arkin, Academy Award-winning actor who was an Academy Award-winning actor at the time. But Alan Arkin came to Toronto to do a three-day workshop. And I remember getting the email from Second City, and it was expensive. It was like $650, right? Why? And, but I thought, when am I getting an opportunity to do a class at Alan Arkin? So I took it. A number of other, like Doug Morenci was a well-known Second City alumni. I took it. In a, uh, May Ma- I, th- I think May Martin was in that class. No, maybe not. I know I took a class with May Martin at some point. might have been a stand-up class at Second City. Maybe not. Why do I th- but in any case, there were other people in that class who I knew. Uh, Matthew Reed, who plays, who became the, the uh, musical director at the Second City and, and did all almost all of our online shows, Monkey Toast. And um, there were, I'm trying to, Albert Howell. Yeah, Albert Howell was a legendary Second City alumni. Um, wrote for The Tonight Show for a while. You know, he's a big-time comedy writer. He was in that class. And there were, you know, other people. And, and it completely changed the way I, I perform, completely changed the way I teach. Because he was all about um, letting the scene happen, you know, and heightening. And um, and a lot of the terms we used, he didn't know. Like, I, he's the one who taught, it was, it was in his class that I realized, if you're playing an emotion, don't change it. Like, that's where I picked up that. Um, and that, you know, if you're doing a narrative or a musical long form, yeah, maybe someone's got to change, but in a Herald, no one needs to change. In Armando, no one needs to change. In Monkey Toast, you're playing a character comes back, doesn't need to change. Like, in a, like, a, just like in a sitcom, characters don't need to change in a, in a sitcom. What was Alan Arkin's background? So Alan Arkin at the time was just a well-known, was an Academy Award nominated actor. And what people didn't know is he was with the second city in 1960. I didn't know that either. Why? Yeah. And he had worked with Spolin. I think there's a picture of a young Arkin with Spolin. Like he was in class with Viola Spolin. Wow. Yeah. But Arkin, you know, he did this exercise with us, which I teach and give him credit for, where, and, he, and Arkin said, dude, just, just pick an emotion. And, uh, you yeah, just pick an emotion off the top and go with it. And so he goes, you're a baker. And so I'm baking. I'm a baker. Albert comes in. He's like, uh, he goes, hey, I, uh, I saw Cynthia this morning. And that's. Well, I usually do a better Albert Howell imitation. And I, you know, I know Al, Albert and I played together and I, I know him and I, I could kind of, you know, and just knowing from experience there's something, I have some kind of relationship with Cynthia. This means something. So I changed from being happy to being sad. And the scene went really well. And then Arkin was like, David, uh, what was your choice? What your, I, said, I can't do any imitations today. But Arkin was like, what was your emotional choice at the top of the scene? I said, being happy. He goes, do the scene again. Do not change your emotion no matter what. So Albert came in, I saw Cynthia, and I just kept smiling and laughing. And Albert got so frustrated. But the scene was hilarious in a whole different way. Why? So that's why, you know, when I teach, you know, one of the techniques for getting your head, I believe, is pick an emotion and play it really hard. Yeah. 100%. And you don't need to change it. But like I said, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing a, like a, a narrative, a narrative, maybe you do. Like maybe because in a narrative, someone needs to change, right? Like, you know, but in a herald, no one needs to change. Um, yeah, so that really changed the way I play. It changed the way I teach. And I don't know how, but I ended up with Arkin's email because I went out for lunch with him. It was like, unreal. He, there was this guy who knew Marty Kelts, who was a producer and, and, you know, he's an older guy from New York and America. And he was, and he was friends with Arkin. He took the class and we did some hilarious scenes together, me and him. And he's like, Hey, I'm going for lunch with Alan. Do you want to come? I'm like, okay. And like, and my friend <laughs> Don Whitwall, who's this great comedian in Toronto. She came, she was in the class. She came as well. 
I remember the whole time thinking how cool Dom was, and Dom was like, I think when we spoke later, Dom's like, I thought you were really cool. Like, I was so into it. Because I was like, hey, we're doing this show called Monkey Toes tomorrow. We'd love to have you as the guest. He's like, uh, you know what, David? I really need to kind of relax and prepare for the show, for the class the next day. And it's fine. But um, I had his email. And when he won the Academy Award a few months later, I sent him an email congratulating him and, and just saying what an impact the class had on me. And he said, you know what, David? That class is one of the best experiences of my life. And I wish we'd filmed it, but that probably would have ruined it. Aww. And in his autobiography, he talks about that class, that work, that that group. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why? And Arkin could play. He got into two scenes I was in and heightened the shit out of him. And in one intimate, like what I just got thrown, he was like, oh, yeah, sorry, I thought you were going to go this way. I'm like, no. I was like, it's going, it's fine. Like, you're Alan Arkin. It's fine. Whatever you want to do, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. <laughs> But that was like a real highlight, like getting to improvise. Like Arkin just got up and jumped into my scene. He didn't do that with everybody or every scene, but he felt an impulse of how to like move it forward and heighten, and he did it. And it was fucking killer. And that opened the door. I remember Doug Morenzi also jugged you jumping into that scene. Um, but that changed everything for me. That workshop was just mind blowing. And it was all apparent, from what I'm told, all spoiling, because it was all picking emotion. You know, like I, you know, from I, I never read Spolin's book, to be honest with you. I, you know, um, but from people I know that study with her or people who, you know, his dad, it's like, it's all about that pick an emotion and go with it, you know? And so he was very much that. And, and he had said, um, that over time he developed a slew of characters that he had in his back pocket and that he got to the point where he had a character for any situation. And that, and he said, when he, once he developed that, he became unstoppable on stage. Wow. I love that. Yeah, because for me, like, I, I believe at a certain point, I think if you ask anybody, like, if you're good improviser, you know, these are my weaknesses. Maybe the odd person doesn't have a weakness. Maybe that person's a psychopath. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, most, but for me, I, I, if I'm talking in my own voice, I get very commenty. So I have to play characters, right? And I have to be aggressive. If I'm on the side of the stage, like, you know, when people flinch on the side of the stage, if I flinch a bunch of times and don't get in, the next time I flinch, like, you know, the, my brain is telling me, get in that scene. Like, there's a point to get in. Here's an idea, get in. And I know, I go in. I have to force myself in and be aggressive if I'm not being aggressive. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to hog the stage. You know, I'm not that type of person. But I have to be aggressive and I have to play, I have to play characters. No, I think, I think it's good definitely to know your your shortcomings or your weaknesses as you said because they're the things you obviously need to keep developing in order to keep pushing yourself to kind of strive become a more well-rounded uh, improviser and improve your toolkit basically but um, yeah yeah like that's a thing like i don't like sean i can't remember how many classes you took with me because you you know we met near the end of my tenure in the uk like, i don't know if you finished off like with me levels three and four or i know we did a couple levels together I think I did level two with you and I did level mm -hmm. three with Paul, but you covered a lot of classes for him. So I kind of right. had you like semi for two levels. Yeah. So if you were, if you like at Monkey Toast in London, we had five levels. And the fifth level happened because Lauren Shearing insisted on more classes. We need more. I said, I have nothing more to teach you. Like I'd say, people wanted more. So I came up with some stuff and I taught some Arkin stuff, some stuff that Arkin taught me. And we did two prop in that class as well. Um, like it was a level five or master class. It's a, you can charge more when you call it a master class. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Our class, I was, was always out of keeping the classes reasonably priced. Um, but if by level four, you know, I, I, you know, when we would be doing, 
a commando or a herald or an armand or whatever, you know, before I get like half the class, okay, seven, you get up and I, I give everyone an individual note. And then by, by certain times, it's like, it's not a surprise what I'm about to tell you. I've been telling you this for like six months. You got to play characters. You need to be aggressive. I find that really helpful personally. Like you had a big impact on me as a teacher because, you know, you, you didn't pull any punches in terms of telling us like what we were doing wrong, but yeah. you gave us a lot of guidance and, you know, you gave us like examples and, you know, direction on how to kind of develop our skill set. So that's why it really resonated with me. Yeah. Like I think one of my strengths as a teacher is like, if, if someone's in class with me for a few weeks, I can kind of see like, okay, here's what you need to do. I can kind of find people's, for lack of a better problem or their crutch and I can, if they can, I can break it. If they'll let me, mm. right? If they'll let me help them. I always tell, if I'm teaching a full course with people, I always tell them the first day, if you listen to what I do and do what I tell you, I guarantee you'll be a better player at the end of this class, but you have to trust me and you got to do Because some people are just like, not going to do it. Yeah, well, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, as they say. Yeah, and um, like I don't, like I try, I, I'm not mean. Like I, I'm not mean when I give notes. Like that's a thing, you know, and I, I, I really love my students. You know, I really love seeing them. The greatest feeling is seeing them get it or seeing the switch go up or seeing the breakthrough. You know, see, and sometimes it's in the show. They have the breakthrough in the show. And it's like, oh my God, look at them. They finally get, it's finally clipped. And um, I remember, you know, because we would give out, uh, we wanted feedback from the students. So we had a questionnaire that people filled out and it could be anonymous if they wanted to. And there was a period of time where I just taught levels three, four, and five, and, and Paul and Carrie taught all the newer students, levels one and two. And then for some reason, I taught a level two class. And um, I think it was after, like, I, you know, I got really sick in the UK, I was dying, I needed surgery. And I have this great memory of coming back to class and getting cheered. Ah, Like, just getting this cheer from the class. Yeah. And Paul Foxcroft, his credit, like, when I got sick, he's like, don't worry about a thing. He took all my classes. And it was constantly, the students were all asking about you. Everyone's out, you know, everyone's you know, sending me, and people came, you know, a number of people who had, who'd been through class and me came to visit, which was great. You know, made a lot of good friends in London through improv. Um, but I remember this class when I got their feedback um, and it was an anonymous and someone wrote, this guy thinks he's the big cheese. He's always dropping names and, you know, we, we learned much better and more fun with Paul. He's really harsh with his notes. Who the fuck does he think he is? And it was like, I still have it somewhere. Why? And I was like, I remember reading it to my wife. She goes, well, it's harsh. I said, yeah. And I said, I said, maybe it's, I said, well, some of it, some of what they said, I thought that's a bit wrong, but I thought maybe they're right. Maybe I am being too hard on them. Maybe I do have too high expectations from this class. Um, and after that, I softened my tone purposely, particularly with younger, with like newer students. Cause I kind of, you forget how hard things are. Yeah. It's overwhelming, you know, in the, the early days of improv, cause it's so daunting, I think. And you, people automatically get in their heads a bit. So the class ended like a week or two later and, and I knew, well, I give everyone individual one-on-one notes and I'll find out then who wrote that. <laughs> but every single person, you know, the first thing I ask is what do you think of the course? And, I, and everyone loved it. Loved it. Can't wait for the next level. I'm like, fuck, I never, I never found out who wrote it. And at my goodbye show in London, I read that thing out loud to everybody. I said, I don't know who wrote this, but whoever wrote this really changed my life. You know, cause it really, it was a, it was a note I needed to get because I, you forget. And, and I think around the same time I started taking golf lessons and it was so humbling because I, because I also remembered in Toronto before moving to London, I started taking tap dabs, tap lessons. 
tap dance. And it's so fucking hard. And the people were good at make it look easy, but you forget when you're improvising 15, 20 years and you've been teaching for a long time. And when, particularly if you're only teaching advanced students who are good, when you go to newcomers, you forget that they're terrified. Yeah. You know? So it was really timely because I, I think a couple of weeks after getting that note, we had our first um, intensive class, a level one class. And that was one of the best classes I ever taught. And I was, and I was very aware. I was aware that I had to soften my tone and I did. It really changed me as a teacher. Um, you know, so I'm a firm believer you learn from your students, you know, as well and stuff. Oh, absolutely. And I think it takes a lot of, I think you need to get a, get outside your own ego in order to take in feedback like that. And I think that's so important as a teacher to be able to do that because otherwise you're just treading water. You're not developing as a teacher. You're just doing kind of the same thing over and over again. And that's the thing with monkey toes. I've always believed you have to give constructive criticism or you're not teaching. Yeah. If you're, if you took driving lessons, and they didn't give you any constructive criticism, you would crash your car. Yeah, 100%. And I tell students, look, you can break every rule. You can do everything. I tell you the opposite. Ignore me. But the things I tell you to do increase your odds of success. And there's going to be the odd scene where you do the opposite and it works, but it won't. You know, this thing I'm teaching you will work 80% of the time. Or 80% of the time the scene's going to go this way and you need to do this. I was going to ask, you performed two prov and you guested with uh, Grand Theft Impro quite a bit as well as performing at Monkey Toast in London. Yeah. How did you find performing at London, having come from like LA and Toronto? I, I loved it. You know, there was a lot, like that's the thing, there were a lot of good play- there were good players, but, and um, I was welcomed by the community and, and um, it's funny, Jen Goody, who I mentioned earlier, she had come, before moving to London, my wife, and I went to the UK, my, my first wife went to the UK <laughs> um, for her job interview. And while I was there, Jen Goody was there because she was with this group from Vancouver, uh, Urban, I've heard blanking on the Canadian content. They were an award-winning sketch. And I knew them all from the, we'd, meet, we'd see each other every year at the Canadian Comedy Awards. And I would sit in with them in Vancouver sometimes. And some of them would sit in the Monkey Toes when they were in town. You know, so we all knew each other. And, and Jen was going out with one of the guys in the cast. So she was there and I went and saw their show. And her and I hung out and I did a show with them and she introduced me. She hooked me up with Dylan Emery. Oh, why? And she said, when you move to London, uh, like she said, like later, we were said moving to London. She goes, all you got to put is like Dylan runs a website, the Crunchy Frog Collective. I got to submit to them saying Second City Main Stage Alumni I'm teaching classes and everyone's going to want to take your class. So she did a, like a virtual introduction to Dylan and Dylan was Dylan's a great guy. Dylan, I love Dylan Emery to this day, and he was a member of Monkey Toast when he could play, which is rare. Uh, Dylan Emery's also in Showstoppers, for anyone listening. Yeah, he's one of the creators of Showstoppers and and, and, and the director, you know, often in the show. Um, and so he introduced me to Phil Whelans, and they asked me to play, and I played. And, and um, it was a bit of an adjustment because it's more, you know, there's improv, they do some improv games, which I'm fine with. I know how to do them. And then the second half, like scene work is scene work. Scene, I've always said, it. scene is a scene is a scene. It doesn't matter. And Dylan said to me, the because I noticed the problem in London was no one could do it. A lot of the groups I had seen that were doing long forms, like they can't do a scene. And Dylan's like, yeah, they, they, they either are badly taught or they taught themselves or they don't know what they're doing. And they learn short form and then they see, they've heard of a long form. They just want to do it. And they can't do a scene, you know? And that I thought was problematic. But Grand Theft Impro, everyone in it could play. And Phil and I... Became, Phil Whelan and I became you know, like Phil was one of my best friends, and still we're still very good friends. And and Phil was one of my few friends of my age, you know, in London. 
Like most people, like seriously, most, because I met most of my friends through the classes, everyone was younger than me. Um, and I remember, you know, I'd hang out with everyone after a class or, or, you know, they'd come to a monkey to show and we'd hang out and, and I go in the bathroom, like, oh, right. I'm a bald old guy. That's who I am. I'm not 25. I'm not the same age as the, as the beta males. Everybody you call them the beta males, the beta males. Um, cause they were in my class. Most of them were in my class, but, um, I love playing Grand Theft Impro and I, I don't know that I ever had an issue with anybody. And I remember this one night in particular doing the show and it was me, Phil, Carrie Ann Lloyd, who is the shit, right? Carrie Lloyd's the best, I think, like maybe the best. I remember, I thought she was best in Fries from the UK when I was there. Uh, um, and Joe Maporgo, who's amazing, you know? And um, we did 10 titles like, the, like they do. They get 10 titles from the audience, we do 10 scenes. And we had a killer show, but one scene didn't work. <laughs> there was this one scene that just did not work. And that's the scene I always think about. The scene that <laughs> Carrie and I were on a boat and it literally sank, but it was such a great show. Um, and there were other things that happened during that show that were just like, like gifts that were mistakes. There was, like Joe went to Oxford. There's all these people, like all the ostentatious people, like a chunk of them went to Oxford. And there's all these... I met loads of people in the UK who are like way smarter than me, way better. Like I have a good education, but they're like, oh my God, they all went to Cambridge and Oxford and they all speak Latin. And I remember John Gracie rhyming in Latin during a show. I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, what's going on? <laughs> like, this Jew does not know Latin, you know? And um, he corrected someone's grammar in Latin. And I was like, what is that? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, but I, I remember Joe and Carrie doing the scene on the tube but I didn't realize they were doing kind of an allegory of the seven circles of hell because it came up about some, and I was on it too. And then I was like, I said, Oh, I'm getting off a of marble arch. And Carrie, Carrie just said this look of like stud. It's like, you're what? You're, Cause we're just, <laughs> we're one of the seven circles of hell. And I was like, Oh, she's like, Oh, you're on the wrong. It became this great mistake. of like, Oh, you, Oh, you, sh- you should be on the center. Oh, I'm not on the central. But because I don't, I haven't read Dante's Inferno. Right. So I, I know the reference of the seven circles of hell, but I don't know what they are. And, and I didn't clue in that that's what they were doing. So it's this great moment of an example of a mistake being a gift, you know. And um, yeah, Phil and I did two prof because we talked about everyone's doing it. Why don't we do it? And I said, I have a great name. And he's like, what? I'm like bald. And so because <laughs> we're both bald men and, and Phil missed our first show. I'm curious. I love asking this question. What's your worst improv show experience and what did you learn from it? Um. Sometimes, you know, we did a show, I tried for years to get Monkey Toast on the air, like as a TV show, and took it to Banff, which is a big TV festival and market. And through a producer I met there, um, I'm blanking on his name, but he was working for this production company and eventually left. And one night he showed up at the show and um, he was French Canadian. Like English wasn't his first language. So he didn't get a lot of what we were doing, but he goes, I can tell like the audience is laughing really hard. This works. So he hooked us up with a producer from the CBC. I'm blanking on her name. She's an executive producer. I'm blanking on her name. Um, but I'd met her before because she came and spoke to my class at Ryerson. And she used to run a show called Street Legal. Yeah, it was a very big hit show in the 90s, I think. And so she came to the show. And this was a big opportunity. We had our worst show we've ever had. Uh. And there's nothing I could do about it. Right, like the show tanked, and even Paul Constable, who's one of the best improvisers and one of the funniest people I've ever met, and Carrie Griffin, who's won, you know, he won best male improviser a couple times once as a monkey toast player, you know, great improviser. I remember talking to them after the show about there was just a weird vibe, and um, 
Paul said to me, yeah, I felt really hesitant tonight. I've never seen him hesitate. And Carrie felt the same way. And my first wife was really into astrology. And she said, you know, she read Star Trek and she goes, there's no way you were going to have a good show tonight. Oh, really? <laughs> the, the, the universe aligned against you that night. <laughs> well, there's something I would tell my students that sometimes, like there's like, um, when Mercury's in retrograde, right? It's something I'd never heard of until my wife brought it up, but people, communications go haywire. And if you're in North American, you watch Stephen Colbert, he often will flub words when Mercury's in retrograde. It affects, or your cell phone's not working properly. It's because Mercury's in retrograde. And I remember talking about uh, a black moon. Black moons, if there's no, if there's a black moon, which means there's no moon in the sky, there's no energy. There's a, there, there's a real stillness in a room. And so you can overcome these things. And I, and I remember at a monkey toe show once we were having our pre-show huddle and I was like, um, Hey guys, there's a black moon tonight. Paul comes was like, gotta bring the energy guys. Gotta bring the energy. <laughs> because I learned like, if you know, like or if you're in the first half of the show, if it's guys, there's no energy, pump it up in the second half. So yeah, just like, uh, like in American football, you know, they make adjustments between the halves. If you have a two act show, Make an adjustment. Something is off. And some nights, just like anything, someone's, oh my God, I had the worst day at work. This is the worst day at work I've ever had. When I was at the Second City, so I was in Psychedelic Contestant. Psychedelic Contestant was an award-winning show. And when you do a show 270 times, you know when, after I say this line, there's going to be huge laughter. And I have to pause. Right? You have to hold. In live comedy, you have to pause, right? In, yeah. in sitcoms, you don't pause. I mean, if it's a live audience, like in Friends, you notice they, you know, the, the audience is laughing. They create fake fake movement, which is cutting between looking, you know, face shots of the people because we're waiting for the audience to end the laughter. But in like um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a single camera show, you can't hear the audience laughter because there's no audience. But in any case, so that show was a 90-minute show. And we got off the stage pretty much every night at um, 9.30. And you, like I said, you know when to pause. Here comes a big laugh. I'm going to pause after this. Some nights the audience didn't laugh. Why? And so you pick up your line. I have to, I, I say this line and it's like, there's no laughter. I pick up and everyone have to pick up their lines a little quicker. And I, for some reason, would always look at the clock when the show, like when I got off stage in the show, before we did the improv set, it was always 9.30. On those nights, which was rare, it was 9.20. Really? Show was literally 10 minutes shorter. So you've got the same cast, right? Yeah. Award-winning show, same room. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes you're going to have a bad show. And stand-ups know it, right? Like in Monkey Toast. Like in London, I had lots of stand-ups. And we would talk about like, look, because in London, you could do three sets a night and you'll kill in two rooms and die in one, same routine. Mm, it's very true, yeah. Some nights it's not about you at all. And you just have to, I remember Nick John, who's, who's an alumni, uh, he's in Chicago. I love Nick John. He was a Second City alumni that I met and was really good to me when I moved here. Like he, at the time, was directing the Twerko. And he said to me, the advantage of being on the main stage is you do a new show, every, you do a new improv set every night. Or if you have a bad show, there's a night tomorrow. There's a show tomorrow. Whereas if you're performing once a week, once a month, it sticks with you. Yeah. You think about it too much. Yeah. Part of being a professional is you got to let that go. You got to let, I just watched Ted Lasso. Have you seen Ted Lasso? No. <laughs> you got to watch Ted Lasso. Brett, uh, Brett Goldstein, who was a student at Monkey Toast, is, is writes on it and is one of the stars. And Paul Foxcroft is a hilarious small part. But there's this line where he's like, be a gold, you know, you know, a goldfish has a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish. He still one of the <laughs> football players. It's like, you got to forget the bad thing that happened. You Because know? I'm for believer as well. Like I talk about that show, you know, with um, Grand Theft Impro, where we have nine killer scenes and one scene didn't work. The audience isn't going to remember that bad scene. But the players do. And that's what we do. We don't like, oh, Lamentor, but oh, that scene. We talk about that scene. Yeah. You know, and, and um, 
But that's the thing. There's always another scene. Same thing if you're doing a show. If that scene tanks, great. Edit. There's another scene coming. There's another scene coming. So it's hard, right? It's hard to... It, it, it's hard, right? And and working in the arts is hard. And, I, and when I teach, like I'm teaching a couple online classes now, and I have a number of actors and actresses, and I talk quite a bit about, this is a difficult profession, you know, because you deal with rejection all the time, you know? And you might get a gig, you might be cast in a play or a show, and guess what? That play or that show is shit. <laughs> and <laughs> it is not your fault, right? So, and I always tell my students as well, like, think of your favorite movie. Well, that movie was written, rewritten, rewritten, got notes, rewritten, rewritten, filmed, screened, recut. They shot five new scenes. It still sucks. And you're expecting every scene you make up on the spot to be killer? Are you insane? That's such a good way of looking at it. That's so true. Because we're hard on ourselves, right? We're really, like I recommend to anybody, there's two, or two books if you're in comedy I recommend you read. One is um, Steve Martin's autobiography. Everyone should read Steve Martin's autobiography. Um, and if you're a writer, if you want to be a writer, like sitcom writer, Gary Marshall, who created Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley. I remember when I lived in LA, a friend of mine said, you should read Gary Marshall's book. And he's adamant about, like, in that book, about this is a tough business. If you're an actor, don't think your acting career. Like, he's the reason Ron Howard got into directing. You know, and Anson Williams played Potsy, became a director. Like, lots of people, lots of people who you liked on TV shows you never seen anymore, they became a director. Because they know, they've learned, they, or they were in the business long enough to realize not everyone can be in front of the camera all the time. Yeah. So why not learn something else? Um, and I forget who he talks about. It was a guy who was uh, Jerry something, who was on a very famous sitcom in maybe the 60s, but then became a huge sitcom director. You know, as he talked about, however many hats you can try and wear, do it. Because this business, it's ruthless in a way. Like, you know, your show might be great, but if no one's watching it, it's going to get canceled. As well, I suppose the more skills you have, the more they're going to feed into each other. Uh, I'm curious, who would you love to improvise with? Susan Messing is one. Like I have mentioned to her, like she said, when you come to Chicago, let me know and we'll do Messing with a Friend. But um, uh, Scott Robinson doesn't really perform anymore. I would just love to get together with, to be honest, like the Monkey Toast gang, I rarely get to improvise with them because I host the show. Like when I moved back, I wasn't hosting. Someone else was hosting the show. Like the show got restarted and Ron Tite was hosting. And I said, look, I don't want to host. I just want to play. And I really enjoyed playing. Like there's such great players. Like when Lisa Merchant came out to London to do some workshops, um, we did a show together. And I said to her, like I came back to Toronto that's where I said, I miss performing with you. Is there a gig we can do <laughs> somewhere? Like, and we managed to put something together um, where uh, we did – yeah, we did an Armando with Ron Tite, who was the host of Monkey Toast, doing the monologues, and I played, and everyone, and there was a scene where everyone tagged out and left me in, and everyone's like, isn't that great? Everyone got to do a scene with you, Dave. And I'm like, you left me out there. You hung me out there to try. Like, I was done. <laughs> you had to get me out there. But um, Susan's someone I never performed with. I mean, I would love, like, Shirley Cowan, you know, my old coach and my, one of my best friends, you know, when when things are better, you know, we talk about her coming out here and, and uh, I'd love to play with her again or any of the old recliners. Well, or any of the recliners that still perform. Like, that's the thing. They're super rusty. It'd be funny. I mean, I would love to have a recliners ringing in. Um, I, it, you know, it's a tough question during a pandemic because there's just people that I normally would have played with that I would have the opportunity. Yeah. But Susan, you know, I think most people say, oh, I'd like to play with Susan Messick. I'll tell you what, there's a group, the Glenda Jackson Collective. 
in London. Oh, so good. All female, all, and they're like, I never got to see them because I was never, I was always working when they, I was like, oh, I always want to see that show so bad. I've seen them three times and they killed every time. Yeah. So that's a group I would love to play with. And uh, I don't know, like other than Susan, there's no one that I have, you know, there's no like, oh, this is the grail of like, be great. That's a solid choice to be fair. And she's someone, you know, she's great. She's kind and would be like, oh, I've got a great Susan Messing story if you want to hear it. Yeah, you laid on me. So I didn't really know who Susan Messing was. And um, it's before I was a student at the I.O. And I lived around a corner and I lived in L.A. when I lived across the street. I lived around a corner. There used to be an improv place, an improv studio called Bang Studio which was one of my favorite places to perform at because it was literally around the corner for me. I could be there in three minutes and we never warmed up. We just did the show. And it was owned by the Murrieters, Peter, Peter and um, Eliza Murrieta, who are Chicago alumni. And Peter's a big sitcom writer. And I love doing shows there. And so there was a, Jeff Garland used to do a, Jeff Garland from Kirby Enthusiasm used to just before he was on you know, before Kirby existed or, you know, he had a night there called Jeff Garland's combo platter. And I think maybe Susan Messing handed me a flyer at the I. I think it was before I was a student. Maybe I was in level one. I can't remember. But she handed me a flyer and I went to a show she was in. And it was a group called the Dickie Bell Twist Dance Party, which is still one of the best troops I've ever seen. Improv troops, uh, sketch troops, which Scott Robinson was in and Bill Cott. And they've got a, you check them out on Facebook. They're fucking great. All the guys in that group are great. And a couple of them teach and um, I'm blanking on names. But one of them wrote a Mr. Show and they've got a book and, in any case, it was an early show of theirs, and I didn't know Shuli at the time, but there was this scene. They did a couple scenes throughout the show, and there was a scene with Susan Messing wearing a smock like at the hairdresser. So, what are we going to do now that the boys are back from the war? They've been in Paris. They don't like being on the farm. Like she was playing this woman from the 20s. And Shuli's got this, like, can of Crisco. Do you know what Crisco is? No, what's Crisco? It's baking fat. Oh, it's animal fat or just oil. It's just thick. And she's putting it in Susan's hair. And she's putting tons of it in Susan's hair. And Julie's just, and Julie's trying not to crack up. And I don't, and Julie and I are not friends at this point. And I'm sitting in the audience going, I can't believe what's going on on stage. So was she miming doing this or was she actually doing this? No, she was putting actual Crisco in Susan Messing's long hair. Oh my God. And Susan wouldn't break, Susan was deep in character going on. And Susie's just, and Julie just keeps putting Crisco in her hair. And, um, and there were like seven people in the audience. It was not a packed show. And they're doing the sketch. <laughs> and I left there and I was like, oh, I got to take a class with Susan Messing. But she left LA before I got to take a class with her. So fast forward, Julie Town and I become like really great friends. And I mentioned, I'm at that show. She goes, oh my God, you were there? She goes, you don't understand. Susan kept saying to me, put more in, put more in. Like I told you, put more Crisco in. And then I see Susan in 2010 at the Second City 50th. We, uh, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know if she knows who I am, but I go up to her, Susan, I'm David Shore. And I tell her, I said, listen, I was at Bang Studios when you did Jeff Garland comic book. She goes, shut up. And she goes, I saw Sheila Camp with Sis Chris going, she goes, shut up. She pushed me. She's like, shut up. She goes, you were there. I said, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. And I was always like, I will take a class. I got to take a class with you and I'll do whatever you say. <laughs> but I've never seen anything like that since. Like, it was like, oh my God. Like, it was just like, wow. That is commitment. I love that. Serious commitment. So it's interesting how you never know who's at your show. I remember meeting Craig Gerzowski, um when they were doing, um, they were doing this new like improv show in London, um, something where they, they, and Ricky Gervais was a guest and they, he would tell a story and they'd improvise off it. I forget what the show was called. It didn't last long. And they, they um, brought in all these American players. And I knew one of my students was doing a, 
a piece in the show. He said, do you want to come? And, and Carl Mockery was there. And so I knew Colin. I said, hey, do you want to come to the green room? And um, Craig Rosowski was there because he was in the show, but not in that episode. And it was really, he's like, he's, I think, he goes, oh, Craig, we don't think we've met him, David Shore. We, we, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends. He goes, I know you. He goes, oh, he goes, I think I saw you do the One Man Herald. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. And I was like, oh, oh why? So that was weird that he saw me do the One Man Herald. And it's always interesting to hear from people, oh, I saw your show. Or when I met some younger Second City alum, they've like, dude, I used to come to Monkey Toast all the time. I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, good. That's great to hear. Like, I'm glad you like the show. Or, so it's always nice to find out later from people. It's like, I saw your show. and um, I got one more story. You talk about, you asked me about the best show, worst show. One of the best shows I ever did, there were three people in the audience. And that was the Recliner's Living Room show. And it was a Halloween night. And we all came in costume. And the premise of the, the Recliner show was like the regular living room, just sitting all in a row of people. And someone tells a story and people jump up and do improvised scenes. So we tweaked it in that we set the stage. We, there was a sofa at the eye we brought on stage and it was someone's apartment. And if it was your turn, if it was my week where it's, hey, I'm like, I would go from the audience. Like we're, we're starting the show. Everyone's on stage. Like, hey, everybody, I'm Dave Shore. This is my apartment. My friends are over. Can I get a word for a spark? And then they'd say the word. I go, thank you. And everyone, then the lights come up. Everyone's like laughing. Ah, and I'd be going anyways. And yeah, and I was out of balloons because balloons was a suggestion. And so there was like a show within a show. There was this like apartment show. So um, we decided for the Halloween show, we won't know whose place it is. And there were three people there. And James Grace like, do you want to do the show? I'm like, fuck it. We're in costume. Let's do the show. And it's one of the best shows we ever had. And the audience consisted of Shuli's boyfriend at the time, Norm, uh, Jeff Kamen's future wife, Rachel, and a student who none of us knew. That student, Jeff Drake, ended up on my team like a year and a half later. Why? And he was like, I was at that show. That was fucking one of the best shows I've ever seen. So, oh my god! And for me, that taught me if people are there, do the show. Um, because you never know who's there, and it's easy to do a great show in front of a packed house. You do a great show with four people in the audience. That's something. That really means you had a great show, and you never know who's there. Like I, I, I do remember Grand Theft Impro Night where there wasn't a lot of people there, and some one of the other guests like we shouldn't do the show. I said I came all the way from wherever I'm doing. The, we should do the show. These people came. Yeah. And guess what? They're not going to come again if you don't do the show. Like they, they got in London. If someone schleps out to see your show, it's a big deal, right? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You got to honor that. Yeah. And we did, you know, monkey toast as well. Early on, there were some shows. I remember there was a certain alumni who really wanted to play. I said, yeah, I want you to do the show this night. I had her play. She's like, there's a small audience. Should we do the show? And I'm like, we're doing the show. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But we're doing the show. And that's the thing. You never know who's there. There could be a producer that night. There could be someone who becomes a producer. And it's just, you know, unless, like, I do know someone who did a show in Edinburgh where there was, like, one person. They were like, look, we'll do the show if you want. And they're like, then guys like, nah. And so I think that's fair. <laughs> if there's one person or two people and like, we're going to do the show unless you don't want it. It's like, nah, I'm good, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, a, that's another thing. Do the show. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Dave, is there anything you want to promote at the moment? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I do a podcast called The Panel Show Podcast, which um, is a, right now it's monthly, and uh, you can find it anywhere, The Panel Show uh, with David Shore. Um, And basically, I get two real journalists together and two improvisers in character, and um, we talk about real-world topics and events, and and it's really funny, and it's informative. Like, the show always makes me laugh, and um, there's a lot of monkey toes people in it. And I'm, I'll be, whenever you release, I'm in a few months, I should have a new sh- podcast out called um, 
the comedy quiz. Uh, what's the name of it? Yeah, the comedy quiz, fact or fiction. So that should be coming out at some point soon. It's other podcast. Um, and yeah, that's it. But no, David, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show and really nice to catch up with you and uh, see you again uh, online. You too, man. Um, hopefully we'll see each other in the not too distant future. Well, you're always welcome. I'd always love to see you and your brother if you're ever here. Oh, thanks, David. I really appreciate it. I may, may take you up on that. I'd love to get out to Toronto and see the scene and uh, see you in action on stage again. Yeah, no, I, yeah, we could make it happen. <laughs> All right. Well, David, I'll talk to you soon. Look after yourself. Be safe. Thank you, you too. So great to catch up with David. I'm glad to hear he's doing well over in Toronto. Must try and get over there soon. But guys, definitely check out his podcast and try to do some classes with him if you ever get the opportunity. You will not regret it. He's a fantastic teacher. Next week, guys, I am talking with the legendary Susan Messing. I was over the moon when she joined me on the podcast. I was so great to talk with her. She's an absolute improv icon and such a lovely person. It was fantastic talking to her about her own improv experiences. Definitely check it out, guys. But that's it for this week. Big shout out as always to Adam Deveni, sound tech extraordinaire, and to Crowander for the theme music, Space Fun. Look after yourselves, guys. Bye.